20 years ago uh, at seminary, I met my friend Vito, Vito Ayudo. And uh, yeah, it, it's hard to say his name, as you can tell. Uh, but Vito is currently the lead pastor of Resurrection Church in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He's been there for about 12 years. But eight years before that, Vito became one of my very best friends. Uh, do you have a very best friend? And would you think of that person now? And I mean someone who you laugh with and who you cry with. Uh, someone who, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say, they were one of the greatest gifts that God had ever put into your life. That is my friend, Vito. It's true. I, I want to say this very particularly. If it were not for Vito, I would not be here. In June of last year, when I was uh, listening for God's call on my life and trying to figure out where God would lead me, Vito sent me an email, and he said, I think this is where God is leading you. And it was a link to the Renaissance Church lead pastor position. And I said, no, I could never leave where I am. And he said, you're out of your mind. This is the place that God is calling you. And he persisted. He even emailed the committee on my behalf. He pushed me in every way. He prayed with me. He let me cry with him. And he pushed again and again until I stood here uh, in this place with you. And I say that because I love him for many reasons. But right now, especially for that one. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to lead us and preach today, and it is my great privilege to sit and listen to him, and it really is. And I would ask you to welcome him warmly. Would you do that now? I love you. Well, it's a great privilege and blessing for me to be here. I could go on and on about my love for Christian and how our families uh, have been knit together by God's spirit over the years. Um, I could spend a lot of time even saying how much I love this church, although this is the first time that I've ever been to this church. But I love all of you. I'm not kidding. I really do. Uh, and I love what God has done in this church in the years leading up to this point. And I love and have great expectation and hope about what God is going to do in this church uh, going forward. Uh, but I didn't come here today to talk about my friendship with Christian, or even to talk about my love for this church, I came here today to preach good news. Uh, I came here to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ that God has given us as a gift to each one of us, and that's one of my privileges as a pastor to get to do. I get to stand up and tell people good news uh, every week. It's one of the best parts about being a pastor. I've been a pastor for uh, almost 16 years now, and uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, in my time as a pastor is that I do not look like a pastor. <laughs> Why are you all laughing? I, <laughs> I, I've got a laugh line coming. It wasn't that one that I expected. <laughs> I never made the conclusion about myself that I don't look like a pastor because I don't know what a pastor is supposed to look like. I made the conclusion because after so many years of having conversations on planes and at parties, you know the conversations you have with people where you introduce yourself and, and they say, what do you do? Um, for 15 years, I've been telling people that I'm a pastor. And for 15 years, almost every single person, almost all of them say one word to me when I tell them I'm a pastor. They say, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And they say, really? I, yeah, I'm a pastor. Like a minister? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a church, yeah, I am. I'll know they're really shocked if they give me the double really. I say, I'm a pastor. Really? Yeah. Really? Now, after people get over the shock of the fact that I'm a pastor, many people then say the same thing after that. And what they say next isn't funny. It's just more sad. It's something that kind of hurts me. Because after I tell them that I'm a pastor, sometimes then they'll get very quiet and they'll say, I used to go to church. I used to go to church. If I meet somebody on a plane or at a party and I tell them I'm a pastor, it's way too common, way too frequent that I then get a story about the church having hurt somebody or ignored somebody or disappointed somebody and then that person walked away in sorrow or disappointment. And if somebody is hurt or ignored or disappointed by the church, it often feels to them like they're being hurt or ignored or disappointed by God. And when that happens, they've walked away. And I'll tell you, you know, we've just met. Can we be kind of real with each other? It could be that there are people in this room that have felt disappointed by a church. It could be even that you felt disappointed by this church. And maybe you haven't walked physically away, but maybe you've drawn back a little bit. It happens. It sometimes happens outside the context of a church. It can happen in any place or in any situation where you help, you want to be fed by something. You want your life to have meaning or purpose, so it could be a marriage. You're in a marriage, and there's warmth, and there's comfort, and there's vitality in life, but then it begins to drain out. Pretty soon, you feel empty. You feel hungry, and you feel like maybe you should walk away. It happens in jobs sometimes. Sometimes you pour yourself into something. You really wanted something to come to fruition. You really wanted it to happen, and you try, and you try, and you try, and it doesn't, and you feel empty, and you feel hungry, and you think, I should just walk away. Or maybe, some of you know what this is like, you really invest in something, and it actually does become successful. You become successful, and all of a sudden, you discover that it just doesn't feel like you thought it was going to, and you feel a little bit empty, you feel hungry, and it feels like you should walk away. I'm bringing all this up because the story I want to share with you today is about, from the Bible, two people who put their hope and their faith and all of their life into something, into someone, and then they felt hurt and disappointed and they walked away. And I'm telling this story to you today because I believe, this is my conviction, that when we go to the Bible And the Bible speaks to us when we gather around this word. It's not just something that happened to people a long time ago. But it actually can speak to us in such a way today that what was true of the people in the scriptures a long time ago is actually true for us. I'm telling us this today because there are a lot of us who at some point, let me reel that back in, all of us. There's only three kind of people in the church. People who are in great trouble right now people who are just getting out of trouble or people who soon will be in trouble. So all of us at one point in time are going to be in the situation of being disappointed, of feeling hungry. And I want to go to this story to say, what is it that God will do when that happens? What does God do when you are hungry and empty and you feel alone and you feel disappointed and hurt and you want to walk away? Well, the story that I'm going to talk about comes from Luke 24, and I would hope, I'm not going to read the whole of this story. It's a long story. It's about two disciples of Jesus who gave their life to Jesus, and when they did that, they found meaning, 
and purpose, and they saw God doing great things. But in the ministry of Jesus, if you look at it from the beginning of the Gospels to the end, people begin to be disappointed. People begin to feel like God maybe isn't with Jesus in the way that they thought he was going to be. And so some begin to turn away. Some begin to walk away. And the secular authorities begin to turn away and really bring their full wrath against Jesus and the religious authorities until the point where they put him on a cross and he dies. He disappoints everybody. Now, these two disciples saw this happen. The person in whom they put all their hope. And listen, here's one of the another drawbacks of being a pastor because I talk about these stories and you say, ah, that's a Bible story. This isn't a Bible story. This is a real life story of two people who put all of their hope and all of their heart into someone and they saw him die in front of their eyes and so they walked away. I want us to look at and think about what is it like when that happens and what does God do? Do you want to look at that with me? I'm wearing the microphone. You just have to say, yes, I'm going to keep talking, all right? All right, let's pray. Let's pray about it. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us now and speak through this story and talk to us not only about what you've done a long time ago or in the lives even today of people who are religious, but in all of our lives, we walk away from things hungry and disappointed. Would you please show us what you do when we are hungry and disappointed? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. If I could get the first slide, I'm going to do two points. I'm a Presbyterian. I usually do three, but I'm only going to do two today. My two points today are God is with you in your hunger. And the second point is God feeds you with himself. God is with you when you're hungry and God feeds you with himself. Now, obviously, those both have to do with hunger and feeding. But I didn't choose that image of the spiritual life being one where you're hungry for something and that you want to be fed and that God will feed you. I didn't choose that arbitrarily. I chose that image because it is one of the chief and fundamental images that the Bible gives us. If you want to know more about your spiritual life, if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, then you have to understand this paradigm of being hungry and being fed. Think even to the very beginning of the Bible. What's the first story in the Bible? God creates two people, and where does he put them? He puts them in a garden. And the garden is filled with trees with beautiful fruit because God wants to feed his people. But his people, you and I, Adam and Eve, all of us, we want to be fed in other ways. And so Adam and Eve looked at the one tree in the garden that God said, not this one, not yet. And they said, we want this. And do you know why they did that? Because they were hungry. We don't believe that God is feeding us the way that he should. We want that. And so the very first sin of the Bible, the fundamental sin, think about this, is somebody attempting to be fed apart from God. That's what breaks everything wide open. And that's the story throughout the whole Bible. The people are in bondage in Israel, right? They cry out to God, we're in bondage. And he brings them out and he says, I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. He wants his people to be fed on the way they're in the desert and they're still hungry. God, give us something. And he rains down manna from heaven. And he tells them, if you ever want to remember that I'm a faithful God, if you want to remember that I am with you, here's what you do. Have a meal. Clay talked about this two weeks ago. How do you remember that God is faithful to you? Have a meal and break the bread and you'll remember I keep my promises. This is all over the Bible, especially when you get to that little baby boy that was born in Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means the house of bread. 
Jesus Christ is born in the house of bread. He raises, raised up by God. He's ready to go into ministry, but first he is tempted by the devil. He's taken into the desert. And what is the very first temptation that Jesus faces from Satan? You're hungry, Jesus. I want you to feed yourself apart from God. Turn these stones into bread. It's the first temptation. All the way throughout, it's always about hunger. What's the first miracle of Jesus? He turns the water into wine. They needed something to drink. What does Jesus call himself in the Gospel of John? He is the bread of life. What does Jesus say has to happen if anybody is going to be saved? You have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So when we think about hunger and being fed, this is a universal thing that all of us face. And so now I want us to look at the very first point that God is with us in our hungry because we are hungry people. So I'm going to read a little section from Luke 24 now. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21. This is the story of these two people walking away. They've just seen Jesus crucified. They're walking away hungry. This is verse 15 of Luke 24. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, Jesus, he's got a great sense of humor. Uh, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I want us to notice three words from the passage that I just read. The first word is sad. Verse 17 says that these two people look sad. Again, this is not a Bible story. This is a real life story. These two people walk away sad. The Greek word for sad is skuthropos, which is related to the eyes. It means sullen-eyed. Their eyes were empty. Their eyes were drained. Maybe they were crying at this time. Maybe they were out of tears and they weren't crying anymore, but you could see it in their eyes. They were sad because they wanted to be fed and what had been feeding them had died. That's the first word. They are sad. Here's the second word, hoped. It says that they had hoped. It's in the past tense. And I can't think really of four more tragic or sad words in the English language, but we had hoped. Many of us have put our hope into things. We had hoped. I had hoped that this was going to work. I had hoped that this person was the one. I had hoped that we wouldn't see this in the news anymore. When you put your hope in something and then it is dashed, it makes you sick. That's what Proverbs says, you know. A hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so these two disciples are sad And they are without hope. They are on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus, which is a town mentioned a couple times in the New Testament. Archaeologists today don't really know where Emmaus is. There are a few guesses where this road is, but I know that all of us have been on the road to Emmaus. All of us have walked away from things sad and empty and sullen-eyed and without hope. But there's a third word here, and it's in verse 15, and it's the word with. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Do you know what the Greek word is for with? Do you know what the Greek word means with? It means 
with. It just means with. That's it. That's what you get for three years at Princeton. With means with. Jesus is with them in their deepest despair, and they don't know it. They are sad, and they are without hope, and Jesus is with them. This is the character of God. This is the way that God is in the world, that when there are people who are walking away hungry and sad, Jesus is with them. And I want you to notice here, he's not just with them. Think about how he must have gotten there. Think of this, please. He's chasing after them. He has just been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. They're not sure what's going on at all. And he's following. Wait up, wait up, wait up. I'm coming with you. He's coming with them in their sadness. He's coming with them in their lost hope. Jesus is chasing after them. This is the character of God. This is what God does in the lives of people who are sad, walking away from people, things that just didn't work out. He's chasing after them. And what's so extraordinary here, I think, is that Jesus is following after them and they don't know it. Their eyes, it says, are kept from seeing him. We don't know why that is, but all we know is they're not sure that Jesus is there, but he certainly is there for him, for them. You know, there was a phrase that was used, I think, like in the 40s and the 50s, maybe even a little bit later. Maybe you've heard it. Have you made your decision for Christ? Have you ever heard that? It's sort of as a way to talk about um, whether or not someone has put their faith in Jesus. Have you made your decision for Christ? And I don't want to belittle that phrase or certainly belittle the idea that we should put our faith in Jesus. I'm here to tell you that it's the very best thing that you could do in your life. To place yourself and your heart and your body and your family and your possessions, everything into the stead, into the hands of Jesus to make a decision for him. But I'm here to tell you even more than that, that whether or not you have made a decision for Jesus, he has made a decision about you. And the decision he has made about you is that whenever you are walking, sad and without hope, he's going to chase after you and be with you. These disciples are praying to Jesus and they don't know it. Think about that. What is prayer? Talking to Jesus, right? complaining to Jesus, praising Jesus, explaining things to Jesus. And these disciples are doing that and they don't know it. They're talking to this man. I'm convinced that lots and lots of people are praying and they don't even know it. I know that Renaissance is a church that there's not necessarily an expectation that everybody here is a Christian. I'm not assuming that everybody here is a Christian. I'm glad that this is a community where people can come in and explore and wonder and doubt and think about who it is that God is and who he's calling us to be, what I can tell you is that this is the character of Jesus, that he follows after you, and it could be very well that you've been praying to him and you don't know it. And part of what I want you to see, if you are not a Christian, is that he is there walking with you, to turn your eyes and to see he's there. You may not see it, you may not always know it, but he is there. And if you're a Christian, I want you to see the same thing. I want you to see that no matter what's going on in your life, he is there walking along with you. Now, this is important too. As he walks along with you, you are still going to sometimes be hungry. It's not going to fix everything right away. You notice again that these two disciples do not know it. Later on in the text, it says their hearts were burning within them. You know how sometimes you think, I think God's involved in this. 
I think God is with me. I think this might have a purpose, but you're not sure. I think that's where these guys are at. They're not sure, but they think that Jesus might be there. He's there. But I think you should hear it from up front from a pastor. When you walk through life in this way, it's not always going to feel like he's there. They didn't know he was there, but he was there. But all of that stuff that they were carrying, that burden that made their eyes sad, that made it feel like their hope was lost, they were still experiencing that. But he was there. Now, some of you, I would expect, would say, you know what? I've had an experience where I walked away from something without hope, and God wasn't with me. Jesus wasn't walking with me. That sounds really great. I really wish that God was with me, and he was guiding me, and all along he was there even though I didn't know it. I would only say to you humbly, you don't necessarily know that. I would say humbly that you don't have the clearest vision of everything and everyone around you. And the claim of this text and the claim of the Bible as a whole is that he walks along with you and he's following after you and he loves you and even likes you. In your sight, he is love, you are lovely. In his sight, you are precious and he's following after you so that you won't walk away into the darkness and leave it all behind so that you won't be so burdened by a lack of hope that you don't want to go on. He's walking with you. Do you know that you are God's beloved? I know sometimes that can be hard for people to believe. Believe me. I know that it is hard to believe that you are God's beloved, lovely in his sight, that he loves you and likes you. But that's the claim of this text. It's the claim for those two people that walked on the road to Emmaus, and it's the claim for those of us who walk hungry today. So that was the first point. God walks with us in our hunger. But the second and the last point is that God feeds you with himself. He not only is content to walk with you in your hunger, he actually wants to feed you. So let's read a couple of those verses now, starting at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I just want to be really plain. If you could keep it up there, that last, uh, that last, um, whatever the thing is happening behind me. <laughs> keep that up. <laughs> Verse 31. He broke the bread and then their eyes were opened. Think about this now. We can go to that next slide. Did you know that in the walk to Emmaus, Jesus walked with these two people. It says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. These two people got a multi-part Bible study from Jesus about Jesus and they get to the end of it and they say, now who are you again? They don't know their eyes are still closed. Apparently, it's the case that you can know a lot about Jesus in your mind, but it doesn't land in your heart. You can walk with Jesus even, and, and I'm not saying you wouldn't be saved. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can know in your head the realities and the truths of the gospel that God is always with you, but you still feel empty. These two people have been with Jesus and he's taught them and he's just gone through all of Moses, all five books of the Pentateuch and all 12 prophets. I'm in here and I walk with people here and I feed people in this way and they get to the end and they say, 
do you have a place to stay tonight? He invites, they invite him in. Jesus, when he breaks the bread, that's when they see him. If you go to that very last slide, verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. This is how he gets the reality in their lives. He gives them something to eat. He breaks bread. I'm not talking spiritually here yet. He takes literal physical bread, and then their eyes are opened. There is something about a meal in which love gets broken open, in which presence gets broken open. Now, I'm Italian, so I already knew this. All right. Before I became a believer in Jesus, I knew that when you sit at a table with somebody, something happens. I knew that when a mother gives a plate of food to children, that something happens. I knew that when two people sit across a table and they share a glass of wine, something happens. This is the way that God has designed the world. The fabric of the universe is written so that how do you find out love? How do you experience it? You eat with somebody. And Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And then their eyes, ah, it's you. I ate it. It's you. Ah, I ate it. And you know, I think they're remembering. I think they're remembering a few things. Did you see how... Uh, similar to this language is he broke the bread and he blessed it. That's Last Supper language. They're remembering, yes, the night before, they're remembering the cross. But they're not just remembering the cross. This language also harkens back all the way to the feeding of the 5,000. Ah, you feed people when they're hungry. Ah, you can do miraculous things when your people come around. Oh, we know who you are. It's when you gather around a meal. There is something about a shared meal that when you gather around a table with someone, when you gather around in the name of Jesus and break the bread and drink the cup, something happens. So I want to leave these two encouragements with you. I want to give this to you as a way that you can take it and run with it. And the things that I'm going to encourage you to do are things I know that you're already doing. We just heard them, but I'm going to encourage you again. I'm going to send you out with that truth again that God meets with his people when we eat together. Here's the first thing. Renaissance church should be a place of feasting. You guys should be known around town the same way Jesus was known. Do you remember what they said about him? He eats with sinners. He eats and drinks. Who's that rabbi? Oh, he's the one who's really good at teaching. No. He's the one who did all the miracles. No. He's the one who eats and drinks with sinners. That's how he was known. What's a Renaissance church like? They're always partying. <laughs> I am dead serious. I am a biblicist through and through. Go to the text. What's Renaissance church known for? They're always eating in each other's homes. They're always feeding people who are hungry. They're always opening up the doors here and having meals. They're always having extravagant meals. They spend too much on the food. They invite people who are homeless in, and they really do it big. You mean just the canned stuff? No, no, no. They make it from scratch, and they sit down, and they eat. They invite people in. They find out who's hungry in their neighborhood, and they go eat with them. They invite people who are lonely, who don't have anybody to eat with them. They invite them in. They call people in to eat. Why? First of all, it's a good time. And second of all, it's a sacred time. 
that God agrees to and says, I'm going to meet with my people, especially when they break the bread and when they pour out the cup. So be a place of feasting. Be a place of indulgence. Be a place of extravagance where you are eating with each other and feasting with each other and laughing with each other and crying with each other. Christian told you that he and I have wept and laughed and spent so much time together and oftentimes it has been around a table where the bread has been broken and where the wine has been poured and we've been able to share with one another not only on a horizontal level but a vertical level to know that he is my brother in Christ and a lot of how I know that is because we've broken bread together. Now, here's the second encouragement I would give you. And it's whenever you can, that when you gather together as often as you can, that you should celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That as often as you have an opportunity, and you're going to have that opportunity today, as often as you can, it should be a part of your worship, of your presence with God to break bread and drink the cup together. You know, some church traditions call the Lord's Supper different names, right? Some call it communion. We are united with each other. Some call it the Eucharist. And Eucharist is a Greek word which is rooted in the word thank you. Thankfulness. For centuries, the church has gotten together and say, we are going to be thankful to God. And how are we going to be thankful to God? How are we going to know that God is present with us? We are going to break bread. We're going to pour the cup and we're going to feast. Now, can you have a worship service without having the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. You absolutely can. You don't need to have it. But when you gather together and you break the bread and you drink the cup, I mean, can you have a worship service without singing? You could. But there's something in your heart that wants to sing. There's something in our hearts that resonate when we hear that music. Could you have a worship service without prayer? I suppose you could. You could just have preaching. There's something in you that wants to cry out to God. Could you have a worship service without preaching? Yeah, you could. You could have a worship service in all sorts of ways. But what I'm encouraging you to think about is as much as you can get to the table, that you want to get there and grab the bread and drink the cup so that you will know, so that your eyes were open. So after that long Bible study of all the prophets and all of what Moses said, as your hearts burn, when that bread is broken, you could say, it's been broken for me. He's chased after me in my hunger. The wine has been poured out. He has been with me when I am thirsty. He is with me now, and even now he is making himself known to me. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is making himself known to you now. Give yourself to him. Know that he can feed you in your hunger and be present to you in all that you need. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who is present with hungry people, who follows after and is with people who do not have enough. And I pray that you would help those who are here today, help those who are hungry to know you. I pray that you would help those who are Christians, who know you and know you to be a God who is faithful that you would help them to understand and know that you are a God who feeds. And I pray that you'd be with those who aren't sure where they're at in your, their faith, to be present and know that you will feed them too, that you already have run after them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.